And this morning we are reading from John chapter 6, verses 22 through 35. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to begin by reminding you where we are. Not in the sanctuary, not in Bloomington, but where we are in terms of a sermon series. Some of you appreciate that. Others of you just want to go from week to week and not think about it. But let me accommodate those of you who appreciate such introductions and say this. We're in the middle of a series that includes the entire New Testament. So from January all the way through the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to be exploring themes in the New Testament. You may remember that our first mini-series was perspectives. Perspectives concerning Jesus looking at the four Gospels. This mini-series is called Thy Kingdom Come. And in this mini-series, last week, John introduced Thy Kingdom Come by reminding us of Jesus' preparation for ministry. This week, I want to talk about the activity of the kingdom. Next week, I'll talk about the teachings of the kingdom. And in the fourth week of this mini-series, we'll talk about prayer in the kingdom. So today, the activity of the kingdom. <clears throat> the activity of the kingdom, to me, is most visible in the miracles of Jesus. There's lots of activity in the kingdom. But Jesus is about healing. He's about bringing peace and order. And in the activity of the kingdom, you see miracle after miracle after miracle. You know, our common definition that seems to be acceptable to most people 
goes something like this. A miracle is a contradiction of the laws of nature. Or maybe it's an event that breaks the laws of nature. That's an interesting definition of miracle. But it's not one that I embrace. I think that it's an improper definition of what a miracle is. You may remember that John calls miracles exclusively signs. Why does he do this? We're going to explore it in just a minute. When you say the laws of nature, you indicate, whether you intend to or not, that there is some orderly part of the universe that is all around us, and when that order breaks down, the natural order comes to an end. It doesn't work anymore. In other words, the laws of nature are authoritative. Now let me add one other thing related to miracles and the broader subject of what is often called apologetics, the defense of the faith. Here's the comment. It is absolutely reasonable and logical not to believe in miracles. And it is absolutely reasonable and logical to believe in miracles. Why do I speak double talk? What seems to be a contradiction? The reason is this. It's not illogical to believe in miracles if your starting point concerning the universe is not purely materialistic. And it's logical not to believe in miracles. According to logic, if your starting point is a completely closed materialistic universe. In other words, you pick a starting point, and from there, you logically determine what you believe to be true. The starting point of a closed universe, a completely naturalistic world, I believe to be a false starting point. Because I think the universe is bigger than that. It's larger than the laws of nature. So before we go any further, let's remember, or perhaps for the first time, understand for some of you, what a first century person's view of miracles was, especially a first century person in Palestine. Those, more particularly, who are from a Jewish background, but even others. Their view of miracles goes something like this. Miracles were an expectation for all prophets. If you were a prophet and you wanted to be recognized as an authoritative spokesperson for God, you would perform some miracles. Remember the passage earlier when they hearkened back to Moses and they asked Jesus, what are you going to do? That was an expectation for prophets. Second thing, in the ancient world, 
not just Israel, but in the ancient world, there was a steadfast belief that events that we consider to be thoroughly human and natural were linked to divine realities. They did not have that separation like we do. Third, especially a Jew in Palestine had an expectation that someday the Messiah was going to come. And that Messiah was going to be accompanied by miracles. And that Messiah was going to bring in a new age. So when the Gospel of John addresses its audience, it has that in the backdrop. And perhaps that's why John, instead of using the word miracles, uses signs exclusively. To understand John's description of miracles as signs, we have to ask, what are the signs? What are the miracles trying to communicate? What's the purpose? Let's go through a a list very quickly of miracles that are well known by Jesus. When Jesus was in the boat and the storm was out of control on the Sea of Galilee, he was awakened by the disciples and he stood up and he rebuked their unbelief and then he said, peace, be still. In other words, water of Galilee, fresh water that supplies life, it's not okay for this sea to destroy life. And so is the creator and sustainer of the universe. I will bring order out of chaos and I will tell the sea, you calm down because I'm God. Or perhaps the story of Jesus walking on the water. Perfectly natural for Jesus to walk on the water. Because he's the sovereign creator of all water. And then he beckons Peter to follow. Because I'm the Lord of the universe, he says. Walk on the water. Whenever Jesus heals a blind man or a lame man, he's declaring, in effect, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Eyes are supposed to view beauty, stare into the hills and see the grandeur and majesty of God. Watch the sunset and be overwhelmed by beauty. Look into the face of another and find love. That's what eyes are for. They're not meant to be blind. So blindness be done. This man will see it's the way things ought to be. Or to the lame man who gets up and walks. Jesus is essentially declaring legs were meant to walk with, to run with, to dance. Some of us can't do that, but most of us can walk. That's the way things are supposed to be, says Jesus. I'm restoring order. When he heals the leper, 
In effect, he's saying, flesh is not supposed to eat flesh. Human flesh is supposed to heal itself. Be done, leprosy. I'm the king of the universe. When he raises the dead, like with Lazarus, on that occasion and a few other occasions, Jesus makes it clear what it's all about. Sometimes he just does a miracle. Other times he says, you want to know what this is all about? I'll tell you what it's about. And on that occasion, when he raises Lazarus, he addresses a sister and he said, do you believe? And she said, of course I believe. Everybody is going to be raised in the resurrection and you can raise them if you want to. And Jesus says, no, in effect, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I am the resurrection of life. This is not about a dead man being resuscitated. This is about me. Do you believe in me? Because if you believe in me, you will have eternal life even though you die. That's the statement I'm making with this sign. And Lazarus was raised. Of course, he eventually died again, as everybody will. But he inherited the resurrection because he believed. And now to the text that we just read, just for a moment, to do the same thing. This text was in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had left the the premises, and people were looking for him. When they found him, they said, where have you been? We've been looking for you all over the place. And he said, you know why you've been following me? I know, because I fed your bellies. Because you were satisfied with the food. You don't understand what this is all about, do you? It's not about you. It's not about food. It's about me. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Those who come to me will never hunger. And those who come to me will never thirst. All these miracles, they're resetting order. They're rolling back the curtain on true reality. They are restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. And these miracles are introducing in parallel time the kingdom of God. In other words, you want to see the real intent? The real intent is the kingdom of God is among you. He said, I'm here. I'm God. I'm doing these things. And I will never leave you or forsake you, he says at the end of Matthew. I'm not going away. My Holy Spirit is coming behind me. And that same parallel reality of the kingdom of God in this present world is here now. That's the sign. Do you understand? In effect, he was speaking the words that John would later write. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was speaking the words of Paul in Colossians, 
When he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn for all, over all creation. For by him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. My friends, he says, there's a new reality. Do you see it? Jesus was claiming his lordship over creation. He was demonstrating his divinity. That's the point of the signs. Now, very practically, what is the natural order of things? The natural order of things is disaster and chaos. I mean, like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fire. I mean, like people getting sick and COVID. And injuries that you don't expect. The natural order of things is conflict and jealousy and pride and anger and dishonesty and selfishness and even murder. That's the natural order of things. The parallel kingdom invites you into another order of things. And what is that order of things? The exact opposite. It's peace. It's harmony. It's love. It's honesty. It's no disease. It's eternal life. That's the real order of things. Miracles point us to that. When Jesus performed his miracles or gave his signs, he was saying all those things. But he was also saying one more thing. It was an invitation. He was saying, here's the sign. I invite you now to open your eyes and step into the kingdom of God. It's right here with you. It's a new perspective on reality. Have faith and train your eyes to believe. You know I love sports. One of the analogies that comes to mind when I think of this is the way in which great athletes train their eyes and they see things better than the rest of us. You know why, if you've ever done it, you step into a batting cage and try to hit a baseball and you swing and miss? It might be because your bat's a little slow. But more importantly... It's because your eye is. In other words, you don't see the ball the way a great athlete does. That athlete has trained his or her eye for years to see in a way that others don't see. Yes, it has something to do with reflex, but it has something to do with the viewpoint as well. So, do you have the eyes of faith? Are you able to see the parallel reality? Let me show you a couple of slides, which I'm sure most of you have seen before. Paradoxical realities. I don't know how many of you saw two faces. But look again. It's a vase. The white part with the black background. There's two realities there. What do you see? 
There's two realities in your life. What do you see? How about this image? A little more complicated. What do you first see? Probably most of you see an older man with a severe look and a long beard. Blink, look again. Let me direct you to see something else. Where the eyebrow is, that's actually a big sombrero. Where the eye is, that's the face of a man. Beneath the man, there's a horse. And far down into the corner, that yellow image, it's a woman wrapped up and only her face is peering out. Do you see it now? I'm not sure what the image even means. Is he rescuing the person on the ground? What I do know, I don't know about you. I first saw the image of a severe old man with a beard. I use that as an analogy to faith. When you step into the kingdom of God, when you follow Jesus, you have a new set of eyes. How does that happen? It happens when you get on the pathway of Jesus. When you devote yourself to being a Christ follower. Remember who saw the miracles? Well, quite naturally, the disciples, because they were there. Remember who experienced the miracles? Many people, but one of them I want to remind you of, the blind man at Jericho, who refused to stop shouting out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I can't see. He put himself in the pathway of Jesus. In order to see with parallel vision, with the eyes of faith, the kingdom of God, you got to place yourself on the pathway of Jesus. You have to be a follower. And when you're there, your eyes will be trained and you'll see things differently. That faith that comes with following Jesus, it's not just some sort of ambiguous idea, I believe. It's essentially linked with obedience. You see the parallel reality when you say yes to Jesus. You see the parallel reality when you believe in the midst of the fire. When you believe in the midst of the water that there is another in the fire standing next to you. There's another in the water holding back the sea. You have to believe you have to walk through the difficulty and then, then you can see. There's a final way of seeing that parallel reality called the kingdom of God. It's through thanks and praise. We have some wonderful hymns in our hymnal. 
By the way, any of you who are really interested in studying the hymns and you don't want to go online and figure it out that way, we got a bunch of extra hymnals. And I'm telling you, if you come by the office and tell me you want a hymnal, I'll give you one, okay? We got a lot of them. It's amazing, amazing prose in those hymns. Just a couple that gives us this perspective on thanks and praise. A couple of songs that remind us that there is a parallel kingdom of God. And there's a perspective where you can see it. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. But then these words. All thy works with joy surround thee. Heaven and earth declare thy praise. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. Mortals, that's us. Join the mighty chorus, which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Ever singing, march we onward. Victors in the midst of strife, joyful music leads us onward in the triumphal song of life. Or this hymn, How Great Thou Art. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displays. Not just nature, but God. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Or this hymn. Oh, worship the King. All glorious above. And gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, our ancient of days. Pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy, space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. I see the world, and then I see a parallel reality called the kingdom of God. How? When I worship the one who created it all and invites me to see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your invisible nature. 
it's rather odd to thank you that we did not see Jesus. But the reason I even utter those words is because when you were on earth, you said to Thomas, blessed are you because you believe, but even more blessed are those who believe and do not see. And that's us, Lord. We look around ourselves and we don't see you walking. We look into the skies and we don't see your image. We pray in desperate hours and we don't, we don't hear an audible voice. But when we open our eyes by faith, we see you. It's mysterious. It's rather inexplicable. And it's real. We know it's real because we believe the testimony concerning your son. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw your glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And that while you walked among us, you set things right. And then you promised that in the end, you're going to make everything new. We are a privileged people, Lord, not to have to rely on the material reality around us as if that was all there was. You've given us eyes of faith. May we follow in obedience. May we train our eyes so that we can see. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.